Well, it was a normal Sunday morning. A husband and wife, they had woken up, and the wife, she started getting ready to go to church. So she gets up, she has breakfast, she takes a bath, she gets dressed, she does her makeup, does her hair. She's ready to go to church, and she notices that her husband still sitting in bed, messy hair, he's got his robe on, he's in his PJs. And so she asks him, what are you doing? Aren't you going to come to church with me? And he responds and says, no, I'm not going to be going to church with you. And she says, what do you mean? Why aren't you going to church? Give me one good reason that you're not going to go to church with me today. So he looks at her and he says, I'll give you three good reasons why I'm not going to church today. Number one, it's really cold in the church. Number two, no one there even likes me. And then number three, I just don't want to go to church. And he says it all grumpy and out of shape, thinking that his wife would let him be. And then she says, okay, what if I gave you three good reasons why you should go to church? And he's rolling his eyes and he's thinking, here she goes again, trying to get me to go to church again. She looks at him and says, number one, the church is not cold. It's actually warm and friendly. Number two, there's a few people there that actually like you. And number three, you're the pastor, sweetheart, so get your butt dressed and go to church. (laughs) I love that story because it's kind of some irrational excuses that this pastor makes and us pastors make sometimes. But maybe you've been there where you've made some excuses that don't really make sense. And that's the theme of the parable that we're going to be in this morning out of Luke chapter 14. And we're going to be in a series on the parables for the summer, the next two months. And Dan and I will be splitting the series, and I can't wait for you to hear some of the parables that we're going to dive into today. Luke chapter 14, we find the parable that's commonly known as the parable of the great banquet or the dinner party. If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be up on the screen in front of you. If you need a Bible, we have free Bibles in the back of our worship center. Luke 14, Jesus is at dinner at a Pharisee's house, and they're having a conversation, and he begins to tell them a parable or a story that conveys a deeper message about God's kingdom and his expectations for all of us who claim to follow him. Here's where we pick it up, verse 16. It says this, Jesus replied to the man and says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't. Um, The servant comes back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets, to the alleys of the town, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. There's a word for us this morning, and there's three takeaways from this parable that I want to bring out for us, and I'm going to share more in detail, but here they are. Number one, in this parable, Jesus confronts the rationalizer, the excuse maker. Number two, Jesus challenges the pious or the religious or the one that relies on their devotion to earn favor from God. And number three, Jesus cherishes the needy. It's a fascinating parable that Jesus shares, and he says there's a man that throws a great banquet, and so this man must have been wealthy or in a position of power, and he throws his great banquet, and then he invites some people to show up. When I think of a great banquet, I think of 
the most luxurious and biggest party ever thrown in the history of the world. Maybe you know it. It was in 1971, and it was thrown by the king of what was known at the time, the Persian Empire. A few years before the Iranian Revolution and the country becomes Iran, this man in 1971 said, this October, I will be throwing the biggest and most luxurious party that has ever been thrown. And he said, I'm going to do it to honor the 2,500-year anniversary of the Persian Empire. And so he plans this massive party. He builds it in the desert, and he hires the finest people to come be a part of the party. He hires French architects that would come in and build in the desert, and they would build 50 suites, and each of the suites had two bedrooms, two bathrooms, an office. It had a salon where up to 12 people could fit in it. It also had in each of the suites a tapestry, which is a picture, a custom picture of all the guests that would stay in each of these Suites. It would take about a year to build and plan for this party. He was building what was called the Golden City. He would build an airfield so that people could come in on their private jets and walk right into the party. He even built a highway from Tehran, the capital, all the way to the party. He brought in 50,000 songbirds from Europe to create the environment. He planted trees. The catering was done by the most famous restaurant in the world at the time, Maxim's out of Paris. In fact, the staff had to take two weeks off from their typical routine to be at this party. All the food was flown in from France except the Russian caviar. There were 250 red Mercedes-Benz limousines there to chauffeur the guests. The Iranian Persian military brought in 150 tons worth of kitchen equipment from France to the location. The dinner table of the main tent where everyone would eat was over 200 feet long. And it took 125 women six months to embroider the tablecloth on this dining table. Kings and queens all across the world were invited. And it is estimated that this party cost close to a billion dollars to throw. The most biggest and most luxurious party in the history of the world. So when Jesus shares his parable and he says, this man threw a great banquet, I imagine a lavish, massive party like this, maybe even a billion-dollar party that's being thrown. And he tells his servant, go and tell all the people I invited to come back, and the party is ready for you. The food is served, the waiters are there, the band is going. But here's what happens, Luke chapter 14, verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. Talk about irrational excuses. Why would you miss out on a party like this? And we find a couple of excuses given in the parable by Jesus, the story that he shares. The first man, he comes and he says, I would love to be at this party, but I just bought this field and I got to go see it. I already saw it because I bought it, but I still got to go see it again. I'd love to be at this party. I love parties like this. So if you guys throw another one, just let me know. I'll be there, but I can't make it this time. Second person comes and says, I would love to be at this party. I hear the band playing, the, the food smells good, but I just bought five yoke of oxen. And scholars believe that this man was very wealthy as well. If that was the oxen that he purchased, he would have had many more animals and probably close to 100 acres of land at the time. Two wealthy men, and they said, we would love to be there. Just got some stuff that's going on. And then the third man comes along, and he seems to have a legitimate reason, like the most rational excuse out of the three. And he says, I just got married. So I can't come to the party. 
So you know how it is that we got the honeymoon plan, we're going overseas, the tickets bought, the hotels booked, the car rentals booked. Love to be there, love you, love to be there, but we can't make it. So the servant goes back, verse 21, the servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry. I don't know about you, but I'd be angry as well. If I threw a billion-dollar party and you guys didn't show up, I'd be angry. Here's what Jesus is trying to show in this parable up until this point. Us, human beings, we like to rationalize parts of our life that keep us from what God has invited us to. And trying to show us that there are far too many people that like the idea of following Jesus and being part of his party that is throwing or part of his kingdom, but have repeatedly rationalized reasons that keep them from it. Remember in college, I didn't have a lot of money. I valeted on the side. My uncle gave me a free 1991 Sentra, and what I ate most of the time was ramen noodles. And I would eat that like every day. Not healthy for you, but I was in college, and it was, it was all good. I could eat some ramen noodles today. They were amazing. So this is all I ate. Now imagine I was invited to a feast where they're serving filet mignons and steaks and fine wines, and I said, no, I'd rather skip that. I got some ramen noodles. Jesus is trying to show this is what we oftentimes do. We settle for the stuff in life and reject what God has offered us. And so these three men, they skip out on this massive banquet, this massive party that's thrown. I want to look a little closer at their excuses. The first one, the field, right? The second one, the oxen. The third one, his marriage. In other words, what we see here are three categories, our work, our possessions, and our relationships. And Jesus is showing that all three of these have the capacity to get in the way of being a part of God's kingdom. I know what you're thinking. Jesus is being a little irrational. And work matters. Possessions matter. A marriage, he's got married, the marriage matter, relationships matter. I mean, Jesus, give us a break here. What we find is that in these three excuses is that the mundane routine aspects of our life have become so important to us that they have gotten in the way of us following God's plan. And so we're really good at rationalizing some of the reasons that keep us from God's kingdom. And some of us, in rationalizing our reasons, what we've trained ourselves to believe is that God would not have us do something that we ourselves do not want to do. We've rationalized and trained ourselves to believe that God would not have us do something that we ourselves do not want to do. And we lack understanding when it comes to following Jesus. And some of us have even gotten so far down the line in this type of thinking that we believe life is all about just doing you, being the best version of yourself. And God is there on the side to support you. He's your bestie. He's your cheerleader. He's your mentor. He's your life coach. And he's guiding you along the path to happiness. But if God is your life coach, he's no longer God. You're God of your own life. You make your own rules. And he supports you in that. What Jesus is trying to show is that there's no coming to God on our own terms. It's no picking and choosing. It's not the way that it works. It's why he confronts the rationalizer, the excuse makers, with this parable. And so maybe here's a good litmus test for you. When is the last time that you have said no to something else so that you can say yes to God? When's the last time you said no to something else so you can say yes to God? So this man says, come on, I just got married. We got stuff to do. I can't be at this party. 
So remember, Jesus is at this dinner at a Pharisee's house. And later on, he would go back to relationships and how we should view Jesus when it comes to our relationships. And here's what happens. Luke chapter 14, verse 25 to 26. A large crowd was following Jesus. And he turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, you must by comparison hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. You don't hear this passage preached a lot on Sunday mornings. Imagine the scene with me. Jesus is at dinner at the Pharisee's house. This is the climax of Jesus' ministry. Right before this, he had just raised Lazarus from the dead, and people began to follow him. He made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and they brought out the palm branches and laid their cloaks down and began to adore him and praise him. He's at the climax of his ministry. Everyone wants to know what Jesus is up to. He's kind of like a local celebrity, and he's at this dinner. And I imagine he shares a parable, and he leaves this dinner, and the Pharisees, their jaws are on the ground, and they're kind of dumbfounded by what Jesus just shared with them. And then he opens the door, and there's a large crowd, as verse 21 says, that there's a large crowd there that's waiting to greet him. And he kind of has to, like, push his way through the door, and the disciples are making way for Jesus to get through. And Jesus gets through, and it says there's a large crowd there, and he turns to them, and he says, if you actually want to follow me, all of you, you must... In comparison to your love for me, hate your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your little babies, and you must hate yourself too. Jesus is trying to show this massive crowd, and he knew that the crowd that was following him did not equal success or did not equal to actual disciples that were following him. And he put it out there plain and clear. If you actually want to follow me, this is it. And he's not saying to emotionally hate the people in our lives, but he's saying there's no rationalizing, there's no negotiating, there's no picking and choosing. Jesus is not just interested in helping you along in life. He wants you to surrender your entire life to him, so much so that it seems like you dislike everything else compared to your love for him. This is difficult for us to understand because We like to have things our way. And Jesus confronts the rationalizers and the excuse makers in this parable. I should have started off with an easier parable to start the series. There's a story about an early church father. His name is Polycarp. Polycarp, uh, we know through historical data and writings, he was a bishop of a church in a little place called Smyrna. And he's known to be a, uh, a mentee, a follower of John the Apostle who wrote some of the New Testament. And so Polycarp was living in the first century Rome, and there was mass persecution. The Roman Empire was beginning to come down on Christians and because Christianity was beginning to grow and rise. And so they put out a bounty on Polycarp's head, and these bounty hunters go to try and capture Polycarp. The story goes that when they come to arrest him, he does not refuse the arrest, but he instead offers them a meal. And they take him into Rome. They bring him in front of the governor. The governor looks at him and says, swear by the genius of Caesar and reject Christ and I'll release you. And Polycarp looks at him and says, for 86 years I have followed him and he has done me no wrong. Why would I now blaspheme or turn my back on my king? And the governor looks at him and says, all righty then. And they lead him to the Colosseum it's like a movie scene out of Gladiator, and they bring him to the Colosseum, and he announces in front of 
the crowd that was bloodthirsty and used to this type of uh, uh, killing and death sentence. And he says, Polycarp has confessed his belief in Christ. He says it three times. Polycarp has confessed his belief in Christ. Polycarp has confessed his belief in Christ. The crowd begins to chant, and they want the beast to be released to devour Polycarp. But the governor decides that Polycarp would instead die by fire. So the executioners, they take him, and they try to nail him to the stake, and Polycarp refuses and says, the one that's going to help me endure this fire is the one that's going to help me endure it without nails. And they say they saw him praying a final prayer. They light him on fire, and something miraculous happens for a second. He's in there, and he's engulfed in the flames, and nothing happens to him. They see him moving around, and they're in fact... The story goes that the entire Colosseum began, began to be uh, engulfed in a smell of frankincense. And he's there and standing. It's this miraculous scene. And the executioner gets angry and spears him and kills him. His mentor, John, would write in the book of Revelation, be faithful even to the point of death. And Polycarp would follow through on it. And I share this story with you because you hear stories of men like Polycarp. And I don't know about you. It's not that inspiring. In fact, it's kind of discouraging. If that's what it means to follow Jesus, then what are we doing here? But here's the question that we need to ask ourselves. And this is a question that you should ask yourself, and I'm asking you this morning. What are your standards when it comes to following Jesus? What is the lid on your life when it comes to following Jesus? What is the standard? What does it look like for your family? So showing up at church once in a while, is that the standard? I'm simply asking, what is the standard for you when it comes to following Jesus? And here's the standard. The standard to following Jesus is not physical death. The standard to following Jesus is dying to yourself. And so for the apostles and for the early church fathers, that's what it meant. Because to deny yourself meant to take up your cross and follow Jesus literally to the point of death. But for you and I sitting here in the suburbs of the South in America, we may not be called to physically die for Jesus like some of our brothers and sisters around the world are. But here's a standard. No matter what century you're in, what era you're in, what city you're in, what country you're in, this has been the standard in the past, and it'll always be the standard. If you want to follow Jesus, the standard is to come to him just as you are and die to yourself. And that's what Jesus is trying to show in this parable. There's no picking and choosing. It's a little bit of a challenging parable, isn't it? Just a little bit. Here's why I share this. Here's why it's got to be challenging. I think sometimes, sometimes, you and I get invited to this massive banquet that God is throwing, and we just say, I'd love to. I got this thing I need to take care of. We're good at doing that far too often. So I see this massive crowd that Jesus turns around to and tells them, I just see people walking away like, oh, I'd love to do that. Uh, hate my father and mother and my kids and my son. I'd love to do that, but maybe later. And kind of walk away. God, I'd love to, but I got this business thing I need to do, and so maybe later. God, I'd love to, but you know, I'm single. And I love the church and I love the pastors. And this girl I'm dating, she's really good looking and she's into me and she's not really in the church so you get it, right? I can't be lonely. I'd love to. We just make a lot of excuses when it comes to being in God's plan. I'd love to, but I can't. I need to. We rationalize. 
And Jesus, through this parable, is saying, you're either sitting at the party or you're not. There's no other way to slice it. I wish I could present this to you, this parable, in a nice, comfy, digestible, evangelical, megachurch way. So you keep coming back and you're happy, but this is it. This is what it's always been to follow Jesus. Come as you are and deny yourself. And I don't think that Jesus' message would change today. I don't think 2,000 years later he would stand in front of a massive crowd and say something else. The standard has always been the same. You should love me so much that by comparison, it feels like you dislike everything else. He was testing people's hearts. He was seeing where they truly were. If They really wanted to follow and be a disciple. That's the first point. Jesus confronts the rationalizer. We got two more points. You guys with me? Here's the second thing that Jesus does through this parable. He challenges the pious, the religious, those who think their devotion to God can earn favor with God. The servant comes back, Luke chapter 14, verse 21. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out into the streets quickly, into the alleys of the town, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Remember, Jesus is sitting here with Pharisees, religious folks, religious leaders. And he's telling them something. You think you're going to be at this party, but you've rationalized your way out of it. You've made too many excuses. In fact, you rely on your own self and your own religion and your own devotion to me. There are some people that you have excluded that are now included. The poor, the blind, the lame, the crippled, these are people that could not enter the temple courts at that time. These were people that were considered less than. Every single one of them would have been an outcast on the fringes of society. They'd be on the streets. And if they got an invitation to a banquet with fine wine and food, they'd be all in. Jesus, in this parable, when he invites the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, and the, he's not looking for people that have better things to do. He's looking for those that actually need him and want to be at this party. The Pharisees, they assumed that they would be included because of their devotion to God, how often they read scripture or how many they had memorized. But Jesus knew at the same time they mistreated the poor. They didn't care about justice for the innocent and for the marginalized, and they neglected the widows. And he challenges them here. He challenges the pious that his kingdom is reserved for those who are humble enough to admit that they need him and can do nothing in and of themselves to earn their way to God. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand this. This would have been shocking to the parables. These are people that would have never been in these type of circles, let alone in the temple. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch, a sexual minority, he leaves and Philip encounters him and says, do you know what you're reading? And he says, how can I? unless someone explains it to me. He had just come from a festival, a religious festival, and no one explained it. Why? He would have been an outcast. And here Jesus says, these are the people that will be included because they admit that they need me most and they do not rely on their devotion and their works to get favor from me. These are the last people that the Pharisees would have seen at church. Maybe it's hard for us to understand, but who are the last people that you expect to see at church today or at churches today? 
While Jesus invites those on the fringes of society, we've got churches now putting up signs on bathrooms saying, the church is reserved for people who fit a typical box. In other words, Jesus is reserved for certain people. And you might say, well, the church welcomes everyone. Welcoming and pulling out a chair for someone to have a seat at the table are two different things. When's the last time you've seen a person with disability on a stage of a church, let alone the leadership of a church? I think at times we've reserved our spaces for those who look good, talk good, and are educated. We've reserved our friendships to those who come from our same family backgrounds, shop at the same places, have the same skin color, and wear the same clothes. And here's the question, and here's the challenge for the pious. When will we get comfortable with having the uncomfortable people in our lives part of our lives? What's the standard to following Jesus? Jesus is showing all the man-made walls and limitations. I'm less interested in that. I'm interested in those who actually want to be part of my party because they are desperately in need of me. The poor and the crippled, the blind, the lame, they would have been at this party in a heartbeat. Worship team, you guys can come on up as I get ready to wrap up. The parable continues. Verse 22, the sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes, compel them to come in so that my house will be full. This part of, my, this part of the parable blows my mind. You'd think the first two parts would blow my mind. This is the part that blows my mind because Jesus could have just stopped the parable right before this. He could have taught the religious folks and said, you know what, I'm throwing this massive billion-dollar party, this lavish party into my kingdom where you'd find purpose and joy and peace, not just for your few years here, but for eternity. Why wouldn't you want that? But you've, you've denied it because of some excuses in your life. You denied it because of your works mentality. And so now I'm going to include the poor, the marginalized, people that were often outcasts into my party, done with the parable. Everyone can go home, have a nice party, and be done with it. But that's not what he does. His servant says, wait, they're all here. But the party's only half full. He says, go to the roads, go to the country lanes, and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. These are people that are now being invited that would not even know who this king is or what this party is about. Now imagine this Persian party, right? And there's this Billion-dollar party that's being thrown and kings and queens and those who have social power, they're coming in and status in society. They're coming in and some of them have said no. And so the king says, you know what? There are people in my city, in my country that often will be excluded from this party because they don't have that status. So bring them in. So they bring them in. Now imagine the, king, the servant tells his king, there's still space here. And he says, Go out into the country, the people that are traveling through the highways of my country, and compel them to come in. Tell them there's a party that they should be a part of. Tell them who I am. So I imagine the servant, he goes to two, two different types of people. The first person he sees, he says, hey, I know you're just traveling through here, and you don't even know that my king is throwing this party. You're invited to it. You can come. And this man is a wealthy billionaire himself. And he looks at the servant and says, why do I need to be at your party? I'm good. I've got money. I've got parties of my own. I don't need to be at that party. And he keeps walking. And then the servant goes to a man on the street begging. 
and says, you are invited to this king's billion-dollar party. He's going, who, me? Yes, you're invited. There's food, there's fine wine, there's 50,000 songbirds from France. It's going to be off the chain. You should be there. This poor man on the street would run to this party. The only people that would have accepted Jesus' invitation, starting with the ones that were originally invited to the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, and to those on the highways and in the country, would have been the ones that actually needed this king and his party. They would have ran there in a heartbeat. And that's the theme of this parable. That's why Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, the first thing he teaches is this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who know they're spiritually broken, and are in desperate need of God, for they will have a seat at a table in my party. Blessed are those who understand they have nothing in and of themselves to offer God, but will gladly accept his invitation. In this parable, Jesus confronts the rationalizer. The parable confronts each and every single one of us who are more concerned with the normal and mundane routine things in life than actually following God. Number two, this parable challenges the pious, the religious. This parable challenges the churchgoer, the religious elite, the life group member, the worship leader, the elders, the pastor on stage. It confronts all of us and challenges us to ask ourselves, are we the ones that have been invited but have said no? And number three, Jesus in this parable, he cherishes the needy. Those who have tried to do it their way, and it's led them nowhere. Those who have tried to do it with one foot in and one foot out and come to a point of saying, I surrender, I can't do it anymore. God, I need you today. I need you now. Jesus says you are cherished and welcomed. There's a party that's been thrown for you. It's the same party. It's a table that he invites us to. We're going to transition to taking communion together. I'm going to invite you to gather the communion elements. If you're watching online, I invite you to gather some bread and some juice. Here's the thing about this party that the king of the universe invites us to, this table that we participate in. Maybe this morning you count the cost and you don't even take it. Maybe you think about it. Maybe you figure out what it means. But maybe you understand that you're in a point of where you need Jesus more than anything else in your life. Here's the thing about this table and this party. It's a banquet. It's a party. It's not a potluck. So you don't get to bring anything to this party. And some of us, we're wired to want to bring our best to God. The best food we can make, the best clothes that we can wear. That cornbread casserole you're good at, you don't need to bring it to this party. It's been paid for. Every single part of this party has been paid for on your behalf by Jesus on the cross. And that's the party that he's invited us to. You can show up empty-handed because you showing up empty-handed is a symbol that you're in need of a God who has poured out his love for you. Everything you need to get access to this party has been paid for. It's free. 
saying it's too good to be true. Yes, that's the gospel message, the greatest message preached in the history of the world, that you and I never have to work our way to God, but God has worked his way to us and invited us to the greatest party to enter his kingdom. Why would we say no? All you have to do is show up just the way you are and deny yourself and follow him. God's throwing a party. All that's required is that you and I, we show up. This bread that we have represents his body that was broken for you on the cross. You take and eat together. And the cup represents the new covenant of his blood between God and his people. No longer are they defined by their good days and their bad days, how religious they are, or if this is their first time at church. They're defined by their need for a Savior who loves them unconditionally. That's what this cup represents. Would you take and drink together? Let me pray for us as we close. God, we thank you. You're a loving God, a loving king who has extended each and every single one of us an invitation to your party, an invitation to the table. And you're simply looking for those who don't have it all figured out, haven't made themselves God of their lives, but are in desperate need of a savior. Thank you. But the standards to follow you have not changed pray for some of us here this morning. Maybe this is the first time and we're that poor person on the street that's being told this good news. You don't have to strive anymore. You don't have to try anymore. Your identity is not based on your good days and bad days. Come to this party that has been paid for because Jesus has died for you. And now you can live a new life in him where you deny yourself and follow him where his spirit lives in you and reigns in you and allows you to live as a new creation. Come and be a part of it. Maybe that's the invitation for some of you this morning. Maybe for others of us, it's simply figuring out what our standards are to following Jesus. What is the standard? What does it even mean? What is the lid? At what point do you say no? Will you invite all of us to take a next step, to count the cost of what it means to be true disciples? Thank you, Jesus, that you poured yourself out. That your will is that all will be saved and none would perish. That you invite us to this party. And it's simply on us to respond to that invitation. We thank you for without the cross, I would be a sinful, broken man. But because of the cross, I have new life and am seen as a righteous child of God. We thank you. It's your precious.